Well, tonight I want to go over something that is absolutely crucial, I think, for our nation in this time, and we've been going through it from the very beginning, and it's been a problem in our nation from the start, and I want to cover that. But before we do, I want us to know this verse, that is, righteousness exalts a nation. Reproach, sin is a reproach to any people. I'm going to say it again. Righteousness exalts a nation. So what is righteousness? A right standing with God. What is true? What is biblical? That exalts a nation. And so we want to, as a people of God, pray for this nation that righteousness would come into this nation deeper than it ever has before. Sin is a reproach to any people, and we have enough sins in this nation that are a great reproach to this nation. So what I want to share with you tonight is the hope of what this nation could be, okay? But also look at the sin this nation has been through, so that if you can identify sin, we can get rid of it, and we can walk in righteousness and turn from our wicked ways. All of you, you pray that prayer, oh, if my people are called by my name right, would repent of their sin and their wicked ways and turn to me. And that's what we need to do as a nation. So we have to call it out and we have to identify it. And tonight there is a national sin that has been with us from the beginning. And that has to do with slavery and the way that we have treated African Americans or black people in this nation and other races and nations as well. The original, uh, those who were uh, Native Americans, as well as Japanese who were interned uh, through the war. We've got a lot of issues to deal with. Amen? And so I want to, I'll keep going back to this. Righteousness exalts a nation. So I'm turning us as a people, this little tiny little group of people, we're turning to righteousness and identifying sin. Amen? So be patient with me. Listen, we're going to have a lot of Q&A at the end. So I'm going to share about 15, 20 minutes of some history. And then we're going to watch a 30-minute video. And then we're going to have some Q&A and discussion, okay? So that we would grow deeper in our understanding of what is righteous and how to live as citizens biblically in these United States. So what I want to start with is the Declaration of Independence. How many of you know that Thomas Jefferson was asked to write the Declaration of Independence. And when he did, beautiful, tremendous piece of work. But what many don't realize is that there was a 168-word passage within the original Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson wrote concerning slavery. And this is what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the original draft Uh, of the Declaration of Independence that was spoken to the then-known world. And he speaks about against the king of England and what Britain... Because remember, uh, from 1619 all the way to 1776, some 150-some years, this nation existed under British rule. Okay? And uh, he said this, he... King, the king of England, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation hither or thither. And so he's speaking against the cruelty of slavery. This is for the Declaration of Independence. It's been going on since 1619 in the United States. It has been happening around the world globally. Slavery was happening all around the world at the time. And it was the form or the mode of using people uh, to cultivate as an industry whatever crop or whatever harvest they were to yield. And uh, the Americans got into that as well under Britain. So Britain began to bring slaves into the United States, and there was a boom in agriculture here in the United States as a British colony. Here in the Bahamas, sugarcane and then cotton uh, were the main products down in the southern states, and they brought many, many uh, slaves in to work them. Thomas Jefferson, in the original... 
Declaration of Independence condemns slavery, but it didn't make it in the original draft. What happened? Why was it edited out of the original Declaration of Independence? Well, let me tell you what many of the other founding fathers said about it. Jefferson said on slavery that it is moral depravity. It is a hideous blot. It is an assemblage of horrors. It's uh, the greatest threat to the future survival of America. Now, this is such a complicated issue because here's a guy writing the Declaration of Independence, stating how evil it is and how it is in fact going to be the one thing that is going to tear this nation apart if it's going to be torn apart, yet he himself had many slaves. How do you work that out? I don't know, but we're going to try to... Righteousness exalts a nation. Let's go back to that, all right? We got to get to righteousness. George Washington said, my only unavoidable subject of regret was not dealing with slavery in a greater manner. James Madison said, the most oppressive dominion ever exercised by man over man. So there has been a divide in these United States from the beginning of our construct, from the beginning of this nation. There's been two camps here, one pro-slavery, one anti-slavery, well, probably three, and then another crew that just people just lived their lives and did what they wanted. So we've had this divide the whole time, and it's been complicated and confusing. Why didn't it make it in the uh, final draft of the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson, in his later memoirs, said this. He blames Georgia and South Carolina for forcing its elimination into the Declaration. The reason his declaring slavery as wrong and as bad, not making it into the Declaration of Independence, is because they're about to go into a war with the most fiercest nation on the planet. Remember, Great Britain was in China, was in India, was in the West Indies, was in Africa, and was in the United States. This is a force to be reckoned with. And the United States, these 13 colonies, were now going to wage war and separate from that great power of Great Britain. And to do that, they needed a united alliance among those 13 states. Two of those states were refusing to go in with it because of slavery. Yeah, cotton pickers. So they, 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 they didn't want to give up the money. So the founders, and here's where it starts. The Declaration of Independence is biblical. It is amazing. It is pure that all men are created equal under God. But yet, they compromised at stage one. And in that compromise, just as Jefferson had prophesied and so many abolitionists and so many clergymen said that if we don't deal with this, it will be our ruination. And so, in order to stay strong to fight a revolution against Great Britain, they omitted it from the declaration so that they could get South Carolina and Georgia to sign and to be a part of that. By 1790, 700,000 slaves were in the United States. By 1830, 2 million. Later on, South Carolina's population of 15 million, 50% were slaves. That's 6.5 million people in that state alone. It was all because of money. And uh, they were fighting for their state right to own slaves. Now, what's interesting is at the uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence for the Constitutional Convention, there were 70 delegates appointed. 55 attended. 39 actually signed the Declaration of Independence and 16 abstained. The reason 16 abstained, some went home sick, some went home early, but some of them refused. And the reason some of them refused was because of the issue of slavery. 
And they said, we cannot have that. We need to have a legitimate bill of rights and to protect the states and the freedom of individuals. George Mason, Eldridge Jerry, and Edmund Randolph were the main stayers who would not sign because they didn't feel it went far enough declaring the freedom of all people. Now, one-third of the Declaration's signers personally owned slaves. And so this thing got in the mix right at the top, contradicting the very wording of that Constitution. We believe this, like Thomas Jefferson, is a walking contradiction. He condemns slavery, he says it's wrong, and yet he has slaves. And he has a concubine whom he has children with, that he loves. It's, it's a confusing issue, and it's, it's a mess. Uh, but here's what I didn't realize. The transatlantic slave trade was global. Started in the 1600s, and it became an enterprise. When the world was colonized and moving out with uh, the British Empire and, and around the world, people needing crops and more uh, uh, agriculture being grown, Africa began sending out people, slaves. And the, because of the shipping that went on, and this new mode of transportation making the world smaller by crossing the oceans with ships, different nations came to Africa and bought slaves from the African nation and took them to the different areas and fields around the world. You can see where the main slave trade was. When Georgia and South Carolina wanted to sign the Constitution so that they could all universally, the 13 states, fight against the, the Great Britain in the Revolutionary War, they demanded articles in the Constitution that said this. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. That's in the Constitution of the United States. Do you know what that's saying? You can't stop the slave trade in the United States till 1808. They wanted free reign to still buy and purchase slaves. But go ahead, you can tax us, but no more than $10 each. That's in our Constitution. And so this is another reason some would not sign that Constitution. And so, uh, I don't know, I never heard this in my growing up and in school. They didn't tell us this. But we've got a real problem here with the Constitution. It's got biblical strength, but at the same time, it's got contradictions that are anti-Christ, anti-Christian, with the enslavement of others. Now, it was a compromise with the southern states where slavery was pivotal to the economy and the states where the abolition of slavery had been accomplished. All along, we've got this duality of those who are opposing slavery and those who are pro-slavery. And so we've constantly got a battle from day one as a nation against slavery because it violates biblical standards that we are all created in the image of God. And we have those who are pro-slavery because it lines their pocketbooks and it's a way in which that they can fund uh, their exploits. During the time period between 1776 and 1808, the, uh, the inner war and inner turmoil within the United States continues to grow and the abolitionists grow stronger and so you have 
half the people who say that the Constitution says that we're all created equal in God and that all people should be free. And then you have another, and so they're saying that the Constitution is pro-freedom, pro-abolition. Then you have the slave people who say, no, it's written within our Constitution, we can still have slaves, you can only tax us, and so forth. And so there's this back and forth about the Constitution, whether it was pro-slavery or pro-freedom. And that was a fight concerning it. Well, in 1808, there was more support for restricting the slave trade than initially happened uh, through time. And in the 1790s, Congress passed statutes regulating the trade of slaves in the United States ships on the high seas. The United Kingdom and other countries also passed legislation restricting the slave trade. In December 1806, President Thomas Jefferson's annual message to Congress said this, I congratulate you, now Thomas Jefferson's president, I congratulate you fellow citizens on the approach of the period at which you may impose your authority constitutionally to withdraw the citizens of the United States from all further participation in those violations of human rights which have been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa and which the morality, the reputation, and the best interests of our country have long been eager to prescribe. Stop this slave trade. So that by 1807, U.S. Congress passed a statute prohibiting the importation of slaves as the first constitutionally allowed moment of, uh, by January 1st, 1808. This act was signed by President Jefferson, entered into force in 1808, and rendered this part of the Constitution irrelevant. And so that article is no longer valued and the slave trade stopped in the United States. Well, that's as far as importing slaves. Did the slave trade stop in the United States? Did slavery stop in the United States? No, it did not. Yeah, it took longer, didn't it? And it was continuing to go on. And in fact, what those slave owners did is they just made greater efforts to create more slaves by breeding slaves, specifically. But again, those who were anti-slavery stopped the transatlantic slave trade. We know what happens after that. This thing continues to tear the fabric of this nation apart. And now you've got Western expansion and the Western expansion is asking, can we be slave states or free states? What should we be? And you can see here by the numbers, again, from the very beginning, we're split in half as a nation. The Union states, those that are free states that say no slavery, are in blue. And the Confederate states, those that are red, are pro-slavery states. And then there are border states here. This thing gets so contentious that what happens? We have... A civil war. And so I want you to get some of this history because it can't be summed up with brief statements. And, and it can't be excused. And we have to see that this thing goes right back to the very beginning and to the root of our conflict. And Though we have a, a constitution that, again, is it makes a great republic, a great form of government, probably the greatest on this planet, and as we learned last year, lasting well over 200 years, where the average constitution of any nation has only lasted 17 years, this nation has lasted because it's built on biblical principles, but those biblical principles were immediately sinned against, Right? And we've been paying the price for it, and we've been in conflict since then. Now, I'll just add a preacher's content here. If you're born again and continue to sin, this is going to create a problem in your heart. You're going to find yourself separated. You're going to find yourself battling with those things that are divisive, right? The flesh or the spirit. Are you going to walk in righteousness or sin? And as a nation, we claim that we're a biblically-based people, but our testimony fails that. But 
Not without a continual people who are praying and speaking up and calling for righteousness. And that's part of our history as well. And right now, we're not hearing that part. Do you understand? 360,000 men gave their lives to stop slavery in the Civil War. 360,000 plus all the abolitionists before it, all those who are congressional, congressional people and, and people the likes that have been fighting against this slavery concept. So it's not all white people that are evil and have been evil to all black people. There's been a fight from day one, both black and white, to call for biblical mandates that we're all created in God's image. Can I get an amen on that? I would encourage you to read uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography. It had a huge impact on this nation. And I love at the end of his autobiography, he writes, he was asked the question about Christianity and he writes this amazing essay on Christianity and I would encourage all of you to read it. And he, he, he says this in one statement, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Therefore, I hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Right? We're a Christian people. We want to follow the Word of God. Righteousness exalts a nation. And the best parts of America that have succeeded were based on righteousness. Yet the sins that we perpetuated have ripped us apart to such a place where we have civil war. And Abraham Lincoln truly understand, understood what happened because as he's looking history in the eye, he's seeing all the way back to the constitutional signers, to the Declaration of Independence, to what was supposed to be eradicated by those statements were actually propagated until, again, we are working at it to get it right. You don't have to trash the Constitution, you don't have to trash all of this. You pull out the righteousness of it and separate it from its failings. Does that make sense to you? And this is what Abraham Lincoln said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Amen? He understood the Civil War was because of the sin of slavery. And for every lash that was caused upon the back of a slave, more blood is going to be shed until we get it right. And I believe that's where we are. God is giving us an opportunity to get it right. And Lincoln understood that he needed to join us together, but in righteousness. Those 13 colonies needed to come together, but in righteousness, not out of deals. So we're working towards this. So we're going to take a look at this two-part system that was at war in the history of the United States. Those that believe in righteousness and all are created in the image of God and those who were for and in favor of slavery and, and prejudice that has come against a people then we're going to see these two frames coming together. And I'm believing as we're progressing as the United States, we're going to see the actuation of righteousness and what the original Constitution meant to do is going to come to fruition through a people who will continue to pray to see this nation succeed in that. Amen? So we're going to go to a video now, and I'd like you to watch it and listen to that, and then we'll get into some discussion. 
Obviously, we know from Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we know America's not perfect, and nobody that's ever lived in America has been perfect. With that being said, the fact that now most students can say more bad things about America than good things about America is a reflection that we've done a very bad job. And this is where you can know that there's been a lot of bad history being taught. One of the places where a lot of this has been learned was the 1619 Project. And this was done by Nicole Hannah-Jones, at least she was the chief editor of this. And the New York Times wanted people to learn about how bad America was. And actually the premise was that America was not founded in 1776, as the Declaration of Independence was done and we separated from Great Britain and America actually became her own nation. No, that's not when America was founded. America was founded, the argument is, in 1619 when the first shipload of slaves arrived in America in Jamestown. Now, with that being said, if you look at the original statement, the mission statement, the, the statement of purpose from the 1619 Project, here's the reason they said they existed. The 1619 Project is a major initiative from the New York Times observing the anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. So the idea that we wanna retell the American story and make sure that we highlight slavery and 1619 as the origins of the story, well, throughout the, the New York Times project, throughout the New York Times articles in 1619, actually on their website, you can go and see these articles. There's an article that, and this is the title of the article, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. Now, it absolutely is accurate that black Americans have fought throughout American history as patriots, promoting American ideals and visions. But the notion that our founding ideals were false, well, the founding ideals were from the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain and alienable rights that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Those were the founding ideals and actually the notion that there is a God and he gave rights to man and government's main job is to protect our God-given rights. Those ideals are true now and they were true then, but this notion that black Americans are the ones that fought to make them true, well, that would discount all of the abolitionists who were not black. That would discount all of the heroes throughout American history, not only that weren't black, many who weren't even white, men and women, but we don't know those stories, but this is the accusation. Another article says American holds an undemocratic assumption from its founding that some people deserve more power than others. Now, America's founding, I would argue, was 1776 when America actually separated from Great Britain to become a nation. The premise of separating from the king was the king thought he had all the power and the people didn't have power and there wasn't equality. And so the Americans said, we are against the notion that some people should have more power than others. This is the exact opposite of how we were founded. Another article says slavery gave America a fear of black people and a taste for violent punishment. Both still define our prison system. So the notion that we are scared of black people in America, if you're not black, you're scared of black people, and that violent punishment defines our prison system? I'm not sure of the violent punishment that's taking place in our prison system today. If it is, I would probably be opposed to it, but, but this is the notion that kids are learning. These are the articles that are being written. This is being taught in schools today. Here's another article. The sugar that saturates the American diet has a barbaric history as the white gold that fueled slavery. The purpose of the article is to identify that candy and candy bars was rooted in slavery and white supremacy. So if you eat candy bars, you might be a white supremacist. This is crazy, but these are the arguments being made today. Another article, most Americans still don't know the full story of slavery. This is the history you didn't learn in school. I will agree. Most Americans have no idea the full story of slavery, but this is not something that is actually being identified in the 1619 Project. It's going the wrong direction. And even advocates of the 1619 Project, people like Democrat Senator Tim Kaine, he said that America actually created slavery. We didn't inherit it from anybody. If you think America created slavery, you had the worst world history teacher in the history of school because obviously there was slavery before America was a nation. Study the Roman Empire, the, the Greek Empire, and if you're familiar with the Bible, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible, I believe it is true, if you go to the book of Genesis, Joseph was the one who had dreams and his father made them this coat of many colors. Joseph's brother sold him into something. Oh yeah, slavery. Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery. 
America didn't create slavery, and yet this is what kids are learning today. This is why we have an entire generation that thinks America has done more bad than we've done good because we don't know basic history. Well, you now even see in the NBA, here's the article. In the NBA, the very term owner has come under fire as players, most of whom are black, assert self-determination. There's a group of players in the NBA who said the term owner offends them because it implies they are owned and that goes back to their roots of their ancestors being slaves. If you are a business owner, the, the assumption is not that you own your employees, rather that you own the business and you hire people to work for you. But we now live in a culture that is so woke that we can't even use the term of a business owner without it presumably offending somebody. In the midst of all of this, the New York Times was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for their great work in the 1619 Project. And when this happened, there was a lot of promotion from the New York Times saying we want to make this a curriculum for, for all kinds of teachers. And actually right now, this is being used in all 50 states in different schools in those states. And kids are learning these very lessons today. Well, as this all unfolded, there was also a group of professors who came out and said this is totally inaccurate. And so professors came out pointing out the historical inaccuracies of what was being said. Now, professors on the left and right side of the political spectrum who just know basic history pointed out how many fallacies were in these articles and inaccurate statements were being made and kids were learning things that simply weren't true. With that being said, you would think maybe the New York Times, the 1619 Project, would have some corrections and would change some of these articles. If you go to their website, there's only one correction listed on their website. And it says an earlier version of the introduction to this project referred incorrectly to Virginia in the year 1619 as a British colony. At the time, it was an English colony. So the only correction they make is to clarify that actually it wasn't a British colony, an English colony. Well, there's a lot of other inaccuracies being said. And here's the problem with this is there is a lot of important history that's been lost, including a lot of black history, a lot of black heroes that have been lost, and even a lot of terrible things that happened in American history. And Americans need to learn the whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The problem is today what's being said not only is misrepresenting what is true, many things are just flat out lies and dishonest in the way they're being presented. And what's also lost is the fact that in America, when we look back to Jamestown and say, well, the first group of slaves arrived in Jamestown in 1619, Jamestown was not the only major settlement in America. In fact, America largely could be referenced back to Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities because America was largely defined by two major early cities, early colonies, and it was Jamestown, and the second major colony was Plymouth. Both of these colonies had a major impact in American history, and both had an incredible legacy they left, but both were very different legacies. If you look at Jamestown, we, we probably are semi-familiar with some of the people from Jamestown, which was founded in 1607, and, and people like Captain John Smith, or, or the name Pocahontas, who's one of the great heroes as we've studied history, well, those are names we would know from Jamestown, and certainly there were some, some great people in Jamestown, but Jamestown definitely had some major problems as well. Jamestown went through a period known as a starving time where they actually turned to cannibalism. They had some major issues in Jamestown. They didn't always have great relations with the Native Americans and the Indians, and, and so there no doubt was issues with Jamestown, but that was just one of the early primary colonies. The other colony was Plymouth. Plymouth was founded in 1620, and if you look at some of the story of Plymouth, we know some major names like Governor William Bradford, but also there's major players to the story, people like Somerset, who was an Indian that the pilgrims met who actually spoke some English, and, and he told them that there was another Indian who spoke even better English than he did, and he wanted to introduce them to Squanto, and so he left and came back with Squanto, and, and they actually met the chief of the tribe, Chief Massasoit, in the midst of all of this, what they discovered was that the Wampanoag Indians were a very good Indian people, a very great tribe. They made a peace treaty with the Wampanoags. It was the longest lasting peace treaty between any white and any natives in American history. The treaty lasted more than 50 years. Now, this is just part of the legacy of Plymouth that even today we don't know much of the story of Plymouth and their relation with the Indians and how good it was in so many scenarios. But let me back you up to Jamestown because the argument is that America was really built as a slave nation. Well, Jamestown was founded in 1607, but in 1619, 
There was a shipload of slaves that arrived in America. Approximately 20 slaves arrived on a British ship, and the British ship had just captured these slaves off of Portuguese trade ships. When they came to Jamestown, they were sold to the people of Jamestown, but they actually were sold as indentured servants. In indentured servitude, you work for a period of several years, and generally about seven years. At the end of seven years, you would receive your freedom. All of those approximately 20 slaves not only received their freedom, they became free landowners, and some of them became very wealthy landowners in Jamestown. It wasn't until 1651 that chattel slavery actually became legal in Virginia or legal in the New World. And this is long after 1619, but again, this is Jamestown. That's one colony. There was a second colony, Plymouth. If you look at Plymouth, their history of slavery is very different. In fact, in Plymouth in 1641, they passed some early laws that actually forbid man-stealing. And man-stealing they defined as capturing someone off of a continent, transporting them across the ocean to a new continent to sell them into slavery. This was specifically targeting the North Atlantic or the African slave trade that was going on at the time. Now, in 1641, they did pass a law where they said that slavery was legal in two conditions. It was legal for punishment for a crime, that you could be a slave for so many years, or it was legal if you were captured in justified warfare. And some people today want to say, well, the fact that they allowed slavery in any conditions is terrible, but remember, this is the 1600s. And if it's a justified war, meaning it was a war where you were defending your property, defending your family, defending your people and nation, you didn't start the war, but you were defending. Well, if you conquered a people in the 1600s, there were only two options for a conquered people group after a war. You either killed them or you enslaved them. And this wasn't something unique for the pilgrims. This was the way the world operated for literally thousands of years. And so this was the pilgrims being normal. But they did say it was against the law to man-steal, to, to kidnap somebody off a continent, to transport them to a new continent and sell them into slavery. Now that law matters. In 1646, the first shipload of slaves arrived in Plymouth from Africa. But because man-stealing was a crime in Plymouth, the people of Plymouth imprisoned the ship captain and the crew and they freed all of the slaves and they actually charged the crew and the captain with the crime of man-stealing. This is a big deal because you see the legacy of Plymouth is very different than the legacy of Jamestown. And this is what's lost today. One of the cool things that was done in the late 1800s is a map showing the legacy from Plymouth and the legacy of Jamestown. And it shows the legacy of Jamestown promoted slavery in many of the southern states, southern colonies. But the legacy of Plymouth promoted freedom and, and, and work ethic and responsibility and biblical values over the majority of the nation. Why does this matter? As the map even identifies, although Jamestown had a very significant legacy in America, the majority of America was not impacted from the legacy of Jamestown. The majority of America was impacted from the legacy of Plymouth and what it promoted throughout all of the nation. But today, we're not learning about the positive things that Plymouth promoted or brought to the new world. What we're learning about is the negative impact of Jamestown, and even some of that is overstated or misstated in what's being said, but this is where the 1619 Project gets it so wrong. One of the things the 1619 Project also says is we need to be learning in America about some of the black heroes who have contributed along the way to the American story, and I totally agree. It's just that the 1619 Project has left out a lot of very important black heroes that they should be highlighting, people like the Reverend Harry Hoosier who was considered an evangelist in the Second Great Awakening. Now, he was a slave early on in life. He got saved and decided he wanted to share the gospel message with others. He joined up with the Reverend Francis Asbury, who was one of the leaders in the Methodist denomination at the time, and they began traveling together. Well, Reverend Harry Hoosier actually began drawing larger crowds than the more famous Francis Asbury and even founding fathers had heard Harry Hoosier speak. People like Benjamin Rush, who knew every major founding father. Benjamin Rush said, considering that Harry Hoosier never had a formal education, he was the best speaker he ever heard. Well, Harry Hoosier, because he had grown up on, on really kind of a slave plantation and, and, and he was a skilled labor kind of guy, he was a blue collar worker. So he felt that he would be best reaching people who really were the, the outdoors people, the, the working with your hands kind of people. And so he began evangelizing and witnessing to people who were very rough people. And when they would get saved, they would have dramatic conversions. Their lives would be totally changed. 
and they begin to be known by the name Hoosier when they would convert to Christianity because people would see, hey, you're different than you used to be. What's different about you? Oh, you're, you're one of those Hoosiers now. You, you, you got saved under Harry Hoosier, and this was kind of the thought that happened. Now, a lot of these guys that were getting saved and having conversions under the work of Harry Hoosier began moving from where he was out to the Indiana Territory. Now, Indiana became known as the Hoosier State. Actually, the state of Indiana, this is their mascot for even one of their universities. Well, where did they get the name Hoosier? You can go back to the Reverend Harry Hoosier from the Second Great Awakening. This is what's very interesting about this is if we're going to talk about black heroes who had a major impact on America, he's a guy certainly who should be included. And yet most people have never heard the story of Harry Hoosier. But if we go to something like the American Revolution, which is where I would argue this is when America became a nation. If you look at the American Revolution, things like in April 1775, this is when guys like Paul Revere came to notoriety because Paul Revere makes his famous midnight ride if you're a student of history. You know, as the British are marching through the colonies, there were many people who made famous rides to warn other Americans the British were coming. One of the guys who made a very famous midnight ride, or at least one of those kind of rides, was this man down here. His name was Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell was actually an elected politician, elected to multiple positions, but he was a guy who made a famous midnight ride, or a famous ride. It might not have started at midnight, but it was through the night to warn Americans that the British were coming. But he was elected to office as a young man up in the New England states. And not only was he elected to office, we own some of his documents from what he did. And he served for nearly 49 years being elected by a primarily white community to serve in a variety of positions. And this, again, is contradictory to some of the narrative we hear today that, well, the white people really oppressed the black people and the black people didn't have freedom. And certainly there were many occasions when that did happen, but that's not the entire story. There are numerous examples of early black officials or black politicians being elected in different capacities. And Wentworth Cheswell was one of those guys making a famous ride warning Americans the British were coming in the midst of that. Let's back up to Paul Revere. When Paul Revere is making his famous midnight ride, he's riding specifically looking for John Hancock and Sam Adams. The reason was he wanted to warn them about the British coming because these were major leaders in the early revolution period. Well, Paul Revere rode to the home of the Reverend Jonas Clark, who was a friend to both of these guys, and he was a cousin to John Hancock. When Paul Revere arrives, both of those guys were there. He warned them the British were coming, and the next morning the British arrived, and this is where at Lexington Green, you had the shot heard around the world, where approximately 70 Americans took on more than 700 British throughout the skirmish. At the end, there were 18 Americans who were dead or wounded. Among those Americans were John Robbins and Prince Esterbrook, a black and white man, both recorded to have been there, and both of them who attended the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark. So black and white men fighting together in the cause of freedom, in the cause of the revolution. And this is something that Prince Esterbrook used to be a very well-known person from the Battle of Lexington. Even today, if you go visit Lexington, there is a, a statue, a little monument rather, honoring Prince Esterbrook there. Well, this is as the revolution kicks off. As the revolution continues, you have major battles. Like in June 1775, you have the Battle of Bunker Hill. And this is a painting done depicting the Battle of Bunker Hill. And over here on the right, there is a black patriot. This is Peter Salem. He's standing behind a white guy, Thomas Grosvenor. And Peter Salem actually was the hero of the battle. Over the decades following the Battle of Bunker Hill, there were many paintings, many different depictions of Peter Salem that were done, highlighting the fact that he was the hero that happened. And the reason he was the hero is because, as you see in this picture, the British officer who was leading the charge, and if you remember the story of Bunker Hill or Breed's Hill, the British charged and, and, and were repelled the first time. They charged the second time, and the Americans the second time repelled them, and the British were taking heavy casualties. The third time they charged, the Americans ran out of ammunition. So now the British were gonna be able to come and take them and conquer them and maybe kill them all. Well, the officer leading the charge was Major Pitcairn. And as he was leading the charge, Peter Salem had a shot left. He shot the officer, British officer leading the charge. It allowed the Americans time to escape. After they escaped, many of the American officers who were there said, that man should be promoted for his bravery on the battlefield, his courage, he saved all our lives. 
He received over a dozen commendations for his bravery on the battlefield, and he wasn't the only man who was honored on the battlefield that day. Salem Poor was also there and was also recognized as being a great warrior on the battlefield. And, and this is still early in the revolution as the revolution continues. If you go to December 1776, when, when George Washington crosses the Delaware, the Battle of Trenton's about to unfold, the famous painting done of Washington crossing the Delaware, in the front of the boat, Prince Whipple, this black man, was depicted being with Washington, which historically we know he was with Washington, when Washington crosses the Delaware, and we know he wasn't the only black patriot there, because there's record that Oliver Cromwell, a black patriot, was there also. Well, this is now still 1776. We're early on in the revolution as you continue on. This is just one of many, many examples. Again, there are so many examples we can point to. Let me give you my, my last example, relatively speaking, but it's probably my favorite example. In 1781, this is where the revolution is coming to a close, although the Americans don't really know that yet. Marquis de Lafayette was a French major general. And he, when he came to America as a 19-year-old young man, he teamed up with George Washington and, and he's helping the Americans fight for freedom. Washington assigned Marquis de Lafayette to track the movement of many of the British officers because we were trying to capture officers and really know where their troops were going. And so for Lafayette to do this, he set up his own spy ring. And one of the things he did in his spy ring was he would take many of the black patriots and he would tell them, pretend to be escaped slaves, go seek refuge in the British camp, and then just try to gather whatever intelligence you can, come back and let me know, I'll tell Washington. Well, one of the guys who joined him in 1781 was James Armistead. James Armistead was from Richmond, Virginia, and when Richmond was conquered, James decided he wants to sign up and he wants to help fight for American independence. At the time, he was a slave. But in Virginia, the law said that if you fought for a year, you could have your freedom. And so maybe he's thinking, hey, I'll fight for, for freedom for America, but also I'll get my freedom. Either way, he signs up. Well, Lafayette asks him to go and work as a spy. So James Armistead goes into the British camp pretending to be a spy. Well, it just so happens that if you remember the famous American general turned American traitor, Benedict Arnold was the famous American traitor who became the British general who had actually conquered Richmond, which is the reason James Armistead wanted to get involved in the first place. When James Armistead was sent by Lafayette to go serve in a British camp, it happened to be the camp of Benedict Arnold. So when James is serving in camp, he does such a good job serving that the officers saw him serving and said, you know, a guy like that should probably serve the officers because he's too good to serve the common man. So James begins serving in the officer's tent and learning the officer's plans. Actually, he gets reassigned and begins serving under Cornwallis, who is the commander of all the British forces. James is the guy who learned that Lord Cornwallis was going to be moving a large section of troops and going to Yorktown. Actually, James Armistead gets Lafayette the information. Lafayette writes a letter to Washington where he says, I have a spy in the camp who's just given me information that, that Lord Cornwallis is going and, and moving his troops. And, and this might be the time we've been waiting for to capture him and conquer him and, and maybe end the war. Well, this is exactly what happened. The Americans were able to surround Yorktown. And this is where the, this is a painting depicting the surrender of Cornwallis. James Armistead is a guy largely credited with the intelligence that led to the capturing of Cornwallis, who's the commander of all the British forces. And this major victory arguably led to an end of the American Revolution. Now, why does this matter? Because James Armistead is credited with the intelligence that led to this victory. So this victory, the last major battle that's considered to have won the revolution, would not have happened had it not been for a black patriot who was a spy in the revolution. And not only that, if you look at the military intelligence that we have today, it goes back to people like James Armistead. Now, why this matters is if you think big picture American Revolution, when we think of how did the revolution begin, we might look at, at the shot heard around the world. But John Adams says the revolution actually began in 1770, the Boston Massacre, because that's when the British shed the first American blood and that's when the war actually began. Well, if you remember the Boston Massacre, there was a man killed in the Boston Massacre who's considered the first blood shed in the revolution. Well, that man was Crispus Attucks. And, and there were many famous depictions and paintings done of Crispus Attucks of the black man being killed by the British. If you look at the revolution, the revolution arguably began with the death of a black patriot and the revolution was won 
arguably because of the intelligence of a black patriot. What this means is you can't even fully tell the story of the American Revolution without including the contributions of black heroes and black patriots in American history. And I've only given a few examples. We have entire history books of just black heroes from the American Revolution, from the War of 1812, from the Civil War, throughout American history. And yet today, very few Americans know anything of these black heroes. Why don't we know these black heroes today? Well, you can back up to a guy like Woodrow Wilson, who's, I would argue, the biggest culprit of why we don't know so many of these black heroes. When Woodrow Wilson was a professor at Princeton University, he wrote a new history series, and actually it was considered kind of this chronological history of America from the beginning all the way up to that point. It was a five-volume set, and it was believed to be the most scholarly history book ever done. Well, in this, he became so prominent and well-known because of this that he became the president of Princeton University. And then, not long after, he became the president of the United States of America. Well, Woodrow Wilson was also a very racist man, very racist man, so much so that when he became the president of the United States, one of the things that happened under his watch and leadership was the rebirth of the KKK. Not only that, Woodrow Wilson showed the very first ever film on the White House, which was The Birth of a Nation. It was a recruiting film for the KKK, and some of his administration actually marched in the marches for the KKK, even in Washington, D.C. So Woodrow Wilson, very racist guy, very bad guy. And actually, this is depicted even in his history books, because if you back up to his history books, he removed every single black person from American history, not just the heroes, every black person in general. And in his history books, he not only ignores every black hero, but by the way, how do you talk about the Civil War and, and leave out Frederick Douglass or the Mass 54th and there's so many examples we could give, he leaves them all out. And yet in his history book, he wants to make sure that if you don't know about black people, he wants to show you what black people look like. And if you look at this, if, if you've ever seen the scales of evolution where it goes from goo to you, one of the things that it shows is, is, is kind of like these Neanderthal images. Well, why in the world would Woodrow Wilson have incredibly racist images in his book? If you back up to some of the leading scholars and scientists of the day, you have people like Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin, in his early book, it was, right, we, we know it as The Origin of Species, but actually there's a subtitle to it, and it's The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Charles Darwin actually argues in his writings that the lighter your skin, the more evolved you are. And the darker you are, the less evolved you are, or the more Neanderthal you are. And this was largely accepted in academic circles, which, remember, Woodrow Wilson was, was a professor. He was the president of a university. This was academically and scientifically accepted, which, by the way, some of those notions today when people say, well, trust all the science. I don't trust all the science because I know not all scientists are right. But, but this is exactly what happened in American history. And because of this, because of these kinds of notions, what happened is most Americans today, because of guys like Woodrow Wilson that, that removed all these heroes, most Americans have never heard of these heroes today. And yet it's very easy when you look at original historic documents to identify that had it not been for the contributions of many of these black patriots, America would look and would be very different. And yet today, we don't learn about so many of these heroes and, and the contributions or even how black and white people work together to, to do great things, to advance equality and civilization and how America was leading the way in this. What we hear is, no, 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 America was really, really bad, right? 1619 Project is what's promoting that idea so much today. And because of that, there's articles that are coming out every single month about how America was rooted in slavery and, and all of America is about slavery and slavery. And, and this is what we hear so much of. So let me just finish by giving a few thoughts related to slavery. First of all, it's worth noting that America was not ever a leader in the global slave trade. That's a big deal because today we hear that America was one of the biggest leaders and, and perpetuators of the slave trade. That's just not historically accurate. And, and if you back up and look at this, the, the North Atlantic or the African slave trade lasted from roughly 1501 to 1875. And during that time period, approximately 12.7 million slaves were taken out of Africa. Scholars have gone back and researched to identify where those 12.7 million slaves 
arrived when they went off continent. And what they discovered is that if you look at those 12.7 million slaves, 43% went to Portugal and Brazil in their holdings. 24% went to Great Britain. 15% went to Spain. 11% went to France. 5% went to the Dutch. 2.5% went to the United States. And 1% went to Denmark. What does that mean? America absolutely did participate in something that was very, very evil. But America was nowhere close to a leader in this, which is what is argued today. And it's also worth noting at this point in world history, every single nation in the world had slavery because it was a global condition. One of the arguments today is that America is evil because we had slavery in our past. I would point out every nation in the history of the world had slavery. In fact, every single people group at some point was enslaved and at some point enslaved other people because this is the history of humanity. It goes back to the notion we started with is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody's perfect. So, so everybody has done bad things. At some point, every nation has done bad things at some point. That's part of the history of slavery. Even with that being said, America has still done remarkable good when it comes to the story of slavery, so much so that America was the very first nation in the history of the world to sign a law banning the slave trade. Thomas Jefferson signed that law on March 2nd, 1807. England signed a law very similar three weeks later on March 25th, 1807, but America was the very first nation to sign a law banning the slave trade. America was the fourth nation in the history of the world to actually ban slavery. We did it in 1865. Now, we were the fourth nation. England did it before us in 1833, and then Denmark, and then France, and then America. At that time in world history, there were 128 nations in the world, and America was the fourth nation to actually end slavery. And I would argue America paid a higher price in ending slavery because slavery in America ended at the end of the Civil War, which was one of the bloodiest conflicts we've ever seen in American history, with more than 600,000 Americans that died in that conflict. And at the end of that conflict, we ended slavery in America. And I'll go even further, because if you look today, slavery still exists today. This is the map depicting the nations of the world and the different colors are showing nations who are doing better or worse jobs with slavery. Now, to give you context, there's 193 member nations of the UN, and that number actually changes every year. Uh, it was 191, then 195, and 193, and it, it changes based on who's gone to war with who, or who's conquered who, who's captured who. But just recently, of those 193 member nations, 94 of those nations had not passed laws banning slavery in their nation. In many nations of the world, slavery to this day is still legal. And that's why it's estimated there's more than 40 million people in slavery in the world today. That, that's more than at any time in world history. And, and this is even in Africa today. There's more than 9.2 million people legally enslaved in Africa. There's people legally enslaved in China and India and Indonesia. This is actually not unusual for much of the world. And yet, with that being said, one of the things that the Global Slavery Index does is not only it shows the nations that are doing a really poor job with slavery, it shows the nations that do the best job. And right over here, it shows the nations taking the most action to end slavery in the world. And the nation doing the most is the Netherlands. The nation in second place is the United States of America. America is doing more than virtually every other nation in the world to oppose slavery. And here's the key takeaway. If you look at America, one of the things you can know about America is America started legal opposition to slavery before any other nation in the world, March 2nd, 1807. And that's America as a whole. That's not even including the states up in New England because every single state in the North back in the pre-Civil War days, actually at the end of the American Revolution, every single Northern state had begun passing laws to outlaw and eradicate slavery in their states. So even before as a nation, we took steps to outlaw slavery, we had Northern states that were doing things to end slavery. And so this is where before anybody else in the world, America's doing things legally to oppose slavery. America also paid a higher price in ending slavery than any other nation in the world because of the Civil War. And America does more than virtually any other nation today to oppose slavery. When you look at America, it's true that America definitely has the sin of slavery as part of our past, but it's also true that America has one of the most exceptional anti-slavery records of any nation in the history of the world. 
And that's something that doesn't get reported today. And on top of the fact, it's also worth noting that America largely could not have become America without the contributions of black patriots. And this is what today has been so lost. We don't know these stories anymore. And yet at Wall Builders, we try to do a lot to retell many of these stories, to reintroduce people to, to some of these heroes they've never heard of before. And I will point out that there are dozens, if not hundreds of other examples we could point to. It's just today we don't know the history. And so when people look at America today and think America's so bad, it's because we don't know the history of America. Or even though America's not perfect, how well America did at overcoming the sins in her past. And I would point out, if you look at any atrocity in American history, if you simply ask the question, how did it end in America? What you will always find is the reason those atrocities ended in America is because Christians stood up and said, we can't do that anymore. We have to stop those things in America. And that's why America corrected and stopped those evils and those sins faster than virtually any other nation in the history of the world. And that's why America largely should still be celebrated today. This is the key here. There are pros and cons to this. And the advancement of the United States is because of righteousness exalting the nation. Yes, there are sins. Yes, there have been things we've done wrong. But we're looking at what we can do right. That's where we want to go. I've only got five minutes left, so we can continue this next week. But if, if I, I want to show you two things that we need to get a hold of because the media is trying to polarize us and continue to keep us white versus black, white versus black. And we are Christians, and so there's no slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female. We are one in the body of Christ. And so we have to work together. Let me just help you get a quick understanding. Uh, let's see the reactions to this. Make America great. Some of you are like, yeah, make America great. Some of you are like, ah. Because the question asked is, when was America great for me? If I'm a black man, when was America great for me? And so this, this looks offensive. Okay? And for those who are in favor of it, what, what does it look like to be America great again? Family country, the righteousness of the good things that America did. See, so it depends on how you're looking at it. And we have to be aware of not being played by the media. If someone's wearing this, find out why they're wearing it. They may not be a white supremacist. They might believe that America has something worth being great for. But if you're wearing that hat, you need to be aware of what it says and how it makes a, a black person feel because you know, when it was great for you, it wasn't so good for me and my people. Does that make sense to you? And then we had this, Black Lives Matters. That's the common response, all lives matter. But to a black person, can't you say after 250 years of slavery, I matter? Can't you just say black, a black life does matter in this nation? And we have to say, yes, black lives matter. Now, we know what happened to the institution of Black Lives Matter. It became a socialist communist movement and they gained so much money and now it's not even recorded as to where the finance is and there's misuse. That's the political arm of it. But just simply listen to each other. When a black person says, does Black Lives Matter, consider their history. All they want is affirmation that in the United States of America, the Constitution matters to me too as a black person. My life matters because so long it didn't. Can't you accept that, right? We can say that, can't we? And so black lives matter. So what I'm trying to point out is we get polarized over our statements and we misunderstand the views of what we're trying to say. And they get politicized and we buy into that and we polarize. As Christians, you belong to the kingdom. So talk to each other. Listen to each other. When someone says, does my life matter? I'm a black person. Do I matter in the United States? You say, yes, black lives matter. We don't have to argue all lives matter. Of course we know all lives matter. But this is a statement coming from a particular person saying, accept me. This is coming from a person that's saying, oh, I lost it. 
Go back to the, to the hat. This is a person who's saying, America has great values, and America does matter, and we want America to be great. And it's not a white supremacist statement. Do you see that? Do you, does anybody understand what I'm trying to say here? Okay? So we as Christians have to go above the political manipulation, and we have to go beyond the hateful speech and hear each other, affirming each other, because righteousness exalts a nation. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father God, I thank you for this night. I thank you, God, that we're learning. We're learning about our history as a nation. We didn't even realize how integrated we've been in this fight for freedom, black and white, fighting together, that all, may, all men and women may be concerned and considered free in your eyes and in this nation. We're going to continue to fight that all are created in God's image and that, Lord God, this Constitution can be a blessing and that the United States can be a power of righteousness in the world. And Lord, we're praying that we will not be fooled by the media, nor will we be pulled apart, but we will be a people who walk in righteousness arm in arm, Lord God, to bring this nation back to a place or forward to a place where it was imagined to be. All are created equal in God's eyes and have rights one to another. In Jesus' name, we ask you to help us. Help our hearts. Break the power of prejudice within us. Give us ears to hear each other and to care for each other. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.